This is the Power to Podcast, show 129, summer PD series number four. And then when I would come back, right, if it went well, when we circled up and we did our circle, we had a conversation about what went well. But then there were times where I'd come back from a sub and they'd be like, we need to revisit our expectations of the sub because we did not do okay. Right. And those are second graders. Welcome to a real world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Ken Erman, host of the Powered Up Podcast, and I am here with my co-hosts, Mr. Matt, the Jealousy Rogers, and Mr. Mike, my best friend, Azalina. <laughs> Guys, how are we doing tonight? Oh, wonderful best friend. So for... <laughs> doing fine. So for those that are possibly listening to this for the first time, uh, as we get into our introductions, Matt and Mike are, are lifetime friends, lifelong friends, and... Mike and I have started to communicate ourselves outside of Matt, and he's become a little bit jealous and worried that I'm I'm stealing his best friend. Is so that a real I am... thing? Are you communicating outside? <laughs> oh, yeah. So Jesus. I am super excited oh. to continue our second annual Summer PD series. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, it's a little bit different than our normal show format. We've had Mike on before, and we always bring on amazing guests who are usually classroom educators possibly administrators or speakers and authors, and we learn about their stories, we learn about their passions, and what makes their classroom or their school or their interactions with students so exciting and memorable for them. For our summer series, we like to switch it up a little bit and hyper-focus on a specific topic to try to make it a little bit more professional development focus for you, kind of tune you up and, and get you ready for, for the upcoming school year. So that's what we're going to do tonight, talking about restorative practices in the classroom. For purposes of the conversation, if you've never heard this before, or like I said, listening for the first time, I am now a secondary instructional coach. I formerly served as a fifth grade teacher, as well as an elementary STEM teacher. So Matt, say hi again to everybody and give us a quick intro of who you are. All right. So my name is Matt Rogers. I am a former learning support teacher. At this point of the recording, I'm a former fourth grade teacher and uh, will be a fifth grade teacher focusing on math and science going forward. So, and Mike, I don't think you even knew that. So <laughs> off to you. That's because I, I, I talk more to Ken now than I do to you, Matt. That's... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, Mike Azalina. I am a Former second grade teacher who transitioned into administration, spent eight years split between assistant principal and principal, and most recently um, stepped out of that role and moved into the world of restorative practices. So I'm an implementation coach and instructor for the International Institute for Restorative Practices, uh, which means I have the really cool pleasure of traveling the country and working with uh, different school systems, different uh, uh, different programs and, and, you know, leaders in those programs and their teacher leaders and helping them to implement 
the social science that is becoming really popular <laughs> around the country in education. Yeah, I'm, I, I honestly am really excited for this because classroom culture and relationships and rapport with students was always my top priority when I was facilitating a classroom. And I know restorative practices by name. I know some of the strategies that go into it, I believe. But honestly, when I look at the, the three of us sitting here, I think I have the absolute least amount of knowledge in this topic. Obviously, Mike, you have an unbelievable amount of knowledge as a trainer, and I know you were, you were involved in it well before um, you, you left your, your full-time role in public education. And Matt, I know that you have experience with it. I'm not sure if you've ever done trainings or not. So let's just kick this off really simple. Matt, I want you to go first, and, th and then, Mike, I want you to follow up. Just, just define it for our audience. What is, restore, what is restorative practices or classrooms or, or all of that? Well, so to start off, I actually have very little experience besides obviously having Mike as a dear friend of mine that I've, I've tapped into uh, conversations wise. What would you do in this type scenario? I actually have experience in a similar style program called responsive classroom, which is not directly connected by any means. And the philosophy behind it, again, does not quite match up. It's more so being proactive in school environments that would allow you to recognize the good going on in a classroom as opposed to constantly focusing on what is not going well. So that is really where I've integrated features of responsive classroom into my, my classroom. Um, restorative, I would assume, I'm going to just take a, an educated guess really comes down to the relationships that you build with students to allow them to feel cared for when there is moments of weakness with certain activities and things going on so that they can rejoin your class and it can continue going forward as productively as possible, as soon as possible, and creating uh, a classroom culture that also allows for for kids to feel cared for and heard and, and what have you. But I'll let the true expert kind of, kind of critique and address my, my, my guess, I guess. I mean, Matt, that like, I gotta tell you, man, like you, what you said was really, really close in terms of the overall aim of restorative practices. And one thing that I, I, I want to put out there, and it's one of the first things I lead off trainings with is this this myth that restorative is another thing that it's a you know a, an extra proliferation of program really what what i go into these situations and these trainings and these coaching opportunities with is restorative practices is the plate it's the toolbox it's the garage that takes everything and puts it on top so responsive classroom is a program right that was put into place based off of the social science of relationship, which is restorative practices. So restorative practices is that plate that responsive classroom grows from. So you, you do morning meetings every day, Matt, is that correct? Right. So you're talking a lot about that proactive piece and something that gets lost in the, in the restorative uh, philosophy is that most people think it's just fixing the stuff that gets broken that it's it's the mediations after the fact it's the restorative justice part of things but really 80 percent of what we do in relationship building should be proactive 
community building should be done 80% of the time. If we're doing that, if we are taking the 80% of our time to actually move our relationships forward and to build them, then we're taking care of what happens in the other 20%. Because the second we, when we, when we build those relationships, if something gets broken, if there's tension, if there's conflict, it becomes just a little bit easier to fix it, right? So the aim of restorative is to do just that. It's to build community so that you can manage tension, manage conflict, and manage relationships down the road. But the actual hypothesis, the, the definition that we use at IRP, and I want, I want to be very accurate when I say this, so I have it pulled up because I read the slides when I train. So uh, it's, it's that people are happier, more cooperative, and productive, and more likely to make positive changes in their behavior. When those, I should, I'm going to say it this way, when those in positions of authority do things with them rather than to them, for them, or not at all. Recently, as with everything, that's evolved. There was a word in there, and I don't know if you caught it. Usually I let people really glance at the slide, but there was a word in there that we looked at as an organization, as an institute, and said, that's not going to work. And the word is authority. Because that limits the people that can have impact and have relationship, right? So now it's changed to, they're more likely to make positive ch changes in their behavior when we do things with them rather than to them, for them, or not at all. Because now that encompasses everybody, right, Ken? Like, you know, when, when, you, when you're saying we, that can be anyone. Before, I'd have teachers look at me and say, well, I don't really have authority. I'm not an authority figure, right? Or kids, they'd say, well, I don't have authority. But students can still build relationships. They can still manage conflict, even though they're not an authority. So really it does come down to that science of relationships. And Ken, I know you talked about, that's been a passion of yours and it was always mine, which is why I moved into this. So um, I, I'm gonna throw a question back out there. One that I ask in, in my professional developments that I think really hits home when we talk about these relationships. And, and that's to think about what those healthy relationships look like, sound like, and even feel like. And then some of the barriers that even, you know, get in the way of those relationships. And maybe we can have a quick conversation about those things. For me, it was, it was understanding, it was trying to understand where my students were coming from and where we could possibly go. And so, and that was just based on observing them, interact with others, interact with other teachers that they possibly knew from the year before where I was in fifth grade, their fourth grade classroom teachers are directly across the hall. So if they were there the previous year, I could see the way that they did say hi to them, didn't say hi to them, all those different things. So kind of understanding that to know what can I get out of them in terms of what looks like a positive interaction. So for some, it was them being very talkative. If they were very talkative, it meant they were comfortable. Others, it was getting them to say hi to me or bye to me unprompted when they arrived or left. And sometimes that took months to get to that. So I, I think the looks like, sounds like, feels like is, is trying to learn your students and who they are to know what a positive interaction can possibly look like. And that kind of feeds into that, that barrier thing that you talked about. What are those, what are those barriers? It's, it's their personality and not trying to force myself on them with my own or my own interests and also not forcing them to step too far out of their comfort zone. So trying to push them a little bit, but, but doing it in a way that appreciates them. Because, you know, for me, I, when I'm around people, I don't know, I have no interest in talking to them. I'm just, I'm not the person that can show up to a house 
full of strange adults and just start making small talk. I will just, I, that's just not my personality. I'm not comfortable in that situation. When I'm around people that I'm very comfortable with, then I'll, I'll talk the whole night. So it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's recognizing that in students and trying to appreciate that and just looking for small little wins throughout, throughout the process. I would, I, I would kind of just add, like, I, I feel I use the talkative example, the idea of kids having respect to what my intention as the, the teacher, the instructor is requesting of them and recognizing that in that almost teamwork style mentality that I need them to work with me as opposed to work against me. And so like, I know even Ken using your talking example, like I would walk in when my student teacher was teaching and disrupt the class on purpose, get them riled up on purpose. And I found in the grand culture of my classroom, how quickly I could get them pulled back was really a sign of whether or not my relationships were where they needed to be with kids. If I couldn't get them back, then I had a lot of work that I needed to do. If I could get them back within a reasonable amount of time, get your jokes out, laugh, that's fine. You're still a kid. There's no problem with that. But the moment that it starts getting carried away, I would kind of gauge how serious that was. And I actually, I mean, my coworkers, I would do the same type thing. I would go over to her room and I would interrupt her class because I knew I could trust my class to step out of the room temporarily. That was my sign or my my yardstick to to measure is my classroom environment is the way that I'm interacting with my kids, trusting and honest and caring and those type features was just one of those markers of how I could tell. Yeah, I I everything that that you all said is is perfect. And I think, you know, when I think about the 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 best relationships that I've had and and student to teacher colleague to colleague, just friendship, just friendship based, right? But the, the best relationships, the strongest relationships that I've had are, are ones that are trusting. They're ones that allow for a brave space in, in feedback, right? So when I think about being able to give feedback to students, you know, the way that I give that feedback, the way they, they, they receive that, really truly understanding those things and understanding their triggers and where they go when there is an experience of shame, which is another bucket in the restorative process. You know, we have students who walk out of the classroom and immediately we say, well, that's against the rules. This should happen, right? We're not asking the question of, well, what happened, right? So asking the right questions is part of that relationship too and having empathy for you know those scenarios. It doesn't mean that there's no consequence. It doesn't mean that they're allowed to do what they want. It just means that there's a high level of expectation and accountability, but a high level of support, right? So, so really understanding those, those things. And I think one other thing that I want to talk about that is important to name, it's hard to hear, but it's important to name, is a barrier that we often experience that we need to be cognizant of that can impact relationship is a bias that we may have of any kind. And I often make the joke in my trainings about I see someone in the airport walking over to my gate and they're wearing a Dallas cowboy hat. And I say, I'm not going to talk to that guy. He's wearing a cowboy hat. I'm not interested in having a conversation. It's a bias. It's a low level bias. And I know what I'm saying is really low level at this point, 
but it still impacts a potential relationship with them. I, when I think about students, right, the second that I think to myself, well, I had the older brother and that, that kid drove me nuts. I immediately have created a bias against a student who's coming into my classroom and that can impact the relationship. So we have to be really careful and cognizant of the biases that we carry, right? Because that will impact those relationships and, and it makes it harder then to navigate trigger points. It makes it harder to, to help a student who may be feeling some sort of shame. It makes it really hard to do things with them. We may totally neglect them when they're in, a, when they're in a, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to go over here and deal with something else. I'm going to teach kids who want to be taught, right? Uh, we might go to our two box and, and really be authoritarian with them. And, and, and that in turn creates more of a disparity in relationship. So I, so I asked that question right up front because I think that's a really important place to start is to recognize, you know, our relationships with, with students and, and how that sort of plays into the way our, our restorative classroom works. So you, you mentioned in the beginning, and, and Matt's talked about this multiple times on the show, about how he runs a morning meeting. So that obviously is going to have our listeners think, okay, this is for elementary classroom teachers only. So Mike, help us out. Who is the restorative practice for in a K-12 public ed setting or, or private education for, for that matter, just K-12 education? Who is this for and how do different types of teachers, you know, based on their age of student and their position make this work? So great question, Ken. I think uh, one of the important points about restorative is that it's for everyone. It's not even just an educational thing. Restorative practices is a practice that you can do even outside of your classroom. As a matter of fact, like my wife, when we get in an argument, if I go down the restorative path and use like an affective statement, will tell me to shut up and stop being restorative because she wants to fight. It is, it is a way that we interact with one another. It is a way that we interact in our personal lives, in a way interact with colleagues. It's a way to make decisions. You know, there, this goes all across the board. I was just in Knoxville, Tennessee at a high school who is looking to implement. And as I walked around the building, they have so many amazing things going on there and not a whole lot of crazy avenues of discipline that they have to deal with, right? And we talked about how this is not just a responsive um, practice, this is a proactive practice. So one of the, one of the goals that I'm gonna work with them on is some like participatory decision-making with students, which is a cornerstone of restorative practices. So really engaging students in the decision-making process around whatever it may be. So they're talking a lot about cell phone use and, and how to really navigate that at the high school level right now. So we're really taking a restorative approach there. And, you know, I, I'm working with a restorative leadership team that had that like eight different staff members on it and a few different administrative members on it. And we're talking about how to engage students, families and staff in this conversation around expectations with cell phones. And then after we engage them in the conversation, we're going to pull it back and we're going to make a decision about what this is going to look like. And we're going to ex explain that decision and we're going to give really clear expectations. I, I often go back to, you know, these, these opportunities in life where people make decisions for us or they do things to us and what that feels like when we're just told what to do or told how to act. And we push back, right? Like when decisions are made for us, we just tend to push back. If, if, if decisions are made and, and then nothing happens based off of that decision, then there's really no accountability to it. So it's all about tying those things together. 
So, you, you know, when I, when I hear that question, I think it's, it's interesting because I've seen it done with kindergartners. Like I've seen the proactive piece done with kindergartners, but now I'm working in a space where I'm, I'm seeing it done with high school students and adults. When I left my school, we were doing staff meetings in circles. Like that's the way we were running them. That data meetings were done in circles. So like adults were doing this. I had PTO um, in a circle. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that you can do with restorative goes beyond even the kids and, and can be used to create relationships with adults. It can be used to make decisions for students in the classroom. You can use it in content. I used to do feedback circles with second graders where they would get in a circle and they would give feedback in a small group. And then students on the outside could come in and enter and give little pieces of feedback um, from there too. So there are a lot of avenues to go here. And I think, I think that that is a misnomer of restorative, that it, it is really just for the little ones because that's where the relationships build. That's where we learn accountability. We should never stop building relationships. We should never stop building accountability. And I do feel as though what I saw at the high school level, it opened my eyes. It's the first time I've ever seen it there. And it opened my eyes to, to even the, the broader avenues that this could go down. So can I kind of ask the, the question I always struggle with is good teaching practice often is um, inherently known. So much of behavior management, when, when I hear a teacher say, I need to work on my behavior management, a lot of that is our teacher instincts responding or preparing for what we expect are going to be those pits that we have to pull kids out of. Whether I preview a lesson and I know academically this is going to be really difficult. Or this time of year, I'm considering my schedule and recognizing that I have a long instructional block of time that my kids at whatever developmental age are going to need to get up and get moving or whatever the case may be. What are some of those features that you feel like, like, I love you mentioned this, this Knoxville, Tennessee dealt with problems that are lighter than some other schools are dealing when they're trying to navigate uh, cell phone usage is all things considered in that severity pretty limited. So how do you continue to recognize what is that line of acceptability and communicate behavior management style techniques that really are integrated very like if i try to do this activity for the benefit of behavior management it's very rarely successful if i integrate a a skill into my my teaching that might be more motivating or what have you how how do you i don't know if i'm even asking a question at this point that that has a point but the, to boil it down, in isolation, when we do some of these behavior management type intentions, they work for that small group or that, that circle time that you're meeting, but they don't work when you actually need them to be successful, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
so let me let me just make sure that I, I'm answering the right question. So so are you asking when a student you do all the proactive work, right? And a student still leaves the classroom or a student still doesn't comply or engage in what you're asking them to do. What next? Is that sort of what you're going down? I, I would say that. I, I think the I'll make this comparison. As a teacher, we can acknowledge here's an academic standard. Here's a way to instruct the academic standard. Here's a way to assess the academic standard to know that it was successful. And if it wasn't successful, we go back to the drawing board. When it comes to almost the unwritten rules or that classroom community, when trying to do something in isolation with behavior management, it doesn't always translate to like, it may work in morning meeting, but it's not going to work when you need it to, um, because the kids are showing up because that's your primary focus. Does it actually move the needle when it comes to, to what you're incorporating that for? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, with restorative practices, there's a continuum. So the continuum kind of goes from really informal, low um, stress, low prep to really formal, which is basically run by administration. So my, my, my immediate answer is to, to know your systems, know your school systems, make sure that there's a restorative component to those things. Cause students look, students are still going to be students and they're still going to have behaviors and they're still going to have moments where they go into their shame cycle and they go into their shame responses. And we do as adults, right? Like I, I go into shame responses when the Phillies lose, I go and, you know, sit and sit by myself and sulk in the corner or, uh, it, it, and I've had students who they get frustrated because they, they, they know they didn't meet an expectation and they know what that means. So they leave the room and they go sit in the hallway. Right. So, so that continuum that I talk about is really important. And it goes from, you know, affective statements, which kind of relay your, uh, the emotion that you might be feeling and connect it to a behavior. So one of, one of the things that I always say to people is being really intentional and using these when you know a student isn't necessarily going down the path that you're hoping that they go. If you have a student who leaves the classroom, you know, I, I feel really nervous when, when students leave the classroom. I don't know if they're safe. So next time, could we use the calm down corner? Right. It doesn't place blame on the student separates deed from doer. The action is what made you nervous. OK, that's what made you nervous. But you can also do it proactively. Hey, I was really proud of the way that everyone came into the classroom today. And, and I would love if that continued and use that proactively. Or I feel really excited on sunny days. So now I've laid out a, 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 an emotion for the students in the room and they know on a cloudy day. And this would happen to me all the time. Kids would come in and be like, oh, are you okay today? It's cloudy outside. It's like, the sun's not out. So, you know, it's all part of that relationship building. But, but Matt, there are responsive parts to that too. And even affective questioning. You know, if you have a student who's absent all the time or misses that morning meeting, which causes them not to be able to engage in the skill that you teach them, you know, when they go down that path of not following a direction or doing something that isn't working, asking the question, what's happening right now? What did you think about when I, when I gave you that, that assignment, what was going through your head? What have you thought about since what happened? You know, you crumbled your paper and threw it on the ground. That's right. You said that, but what have you thought about since? Okay. And what do we need to do to make things right now? What's next? Okay. So walking them through those sorts of things and, and moving down that continuum and having those, 
those conversations and being really intentional about them um, can really help to to navigate. I think what what you're talking about. I, I hope I took it the right way, Matt. Yeah. Well, okay. and and to take a bad question and try to make it slightly less. Like I think that's what you're saying. It's really hard. Uh, the point that I'm getting to is. I remember early in my career thinking, how can I generalize this situation going on with a student or a group of students and use these strategies, these techniques that told me, okay, this is the scenario I need to expect. And here's the flow chart of how to respond, right? Because, oh, I don't know, is this the uh, defiance tactic? Is this the avoidance of work tactic? Is this the, because I can't early on recognize that really they're all interconnected, but because that's a new skill and I'm, I'm trying to put a label on so I can know that right next step, we feel very robotic a lot of times when it comes to behavior management until the point where it just gets to, oh, I've, I've handled enough situations uh, last time I did this, it really didn't work exactly. So I'm going to go a little lighter or, or have a variation. And the best answer is practice and time and experience. But I, I love your continuum of what you're talking about as, all right, we're going to kind of wherever that falls, we're going to work our way back to self-reflection. And how could we handle, even if we're not able to generalize a skill, skill quite yet? And if and if I can jump real quickly to one more thing, Ken, and then I go ahead and 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 roll from there, you know, I think one of the one of the things that made it successful in our implementation in the schools I was at was the systems, right? So the expectation was I, I didn't want to see books, I didn't want to see curriculum for like the first two to three weeks. It was all relationship building, building your norms as a class, so that participatory group decision making was happening. Uh, and again, people do that. So like when, when I go and train, I say, you're already doing this, right? But are you doing it intentionally every step of the way? So like for, for, for me as a classroom teacher, one of our participatory decision-making norm settings as we move throughout the year, it wasn't just the rules at the forefront, but it was every little piece of the puzzle. Before we went on a field trip, let's sit down and have a conversation. We're going to make a decision on what our norms are. Look, Miss Ray is going to be out in two weeks. We have a substitute coming. What are our norms as a classroom? And then when I would come back, right, if it went well, when we circled up, when we did our circle, we had a conversation about what went well. But then there were times where I'd come back from a sub and they'd be like, we need to revisit our expectations of a sub because we did not do okay. Right. And those are second graders. Those are second graders who are able to recognize that our planning that we did very intentionally, right? resulted in another conversation that needed to be had. And that's the next part of that continuum is the circle. And you do those proactively. Like I said, we did circles to build those norms. But then if students weren't responding to them, it didn't always have to be my whole group. If I had five kids who were really struggling at recess, we did a six person circle and we responded to that and we came up with a plan. Um, same sort of questioning, past, present, future, right? What, what was happening outside? What, what makes recess successful most of the time? What's happening now that doesn't? What do we need to do to figure it out? So again, that continuum is really helpful and, and it's part of the training that we do. It's, it's a heavy part. It's like a 45 minute for most of it. And then we do a whole day on circles, like an entire day on how to build circles proactively and responsibly. It's the second day of our, of our training. So you've mentioned a lot of pieces of a lot of different strategies 
to use in the classroom. And so I'm thinking about our audience right now hearing this and, and there's no way that we're going to be able to have someone fully trained and fully understand it on a 45 minute podcast. But what are some, what are some things that you could share with teachers to get them to think about, to implement in the beginning of the school year that fall under, you know, the umbrella of, of some of the strategies you teach so that they can kind of get that feel and understanding to then explore more or the four, I, you mentioned like the four corners, like what are some bigger concepts related to restorative that we can get our, our listeners to think about, to maybe explore and read a little bit more or, or then we'll share resources at the end, but some of those big pillars of it. Yeah. So I think one of the, a few of them that I, that I want to hit on, and we talked about it on our last episode together. So if people want to go back and listen to that, it's a good self-reflection tool uh, and you can find it on the internet and, and you can find articles about it on um, IRP.edu. It's called the social discipline window. And it is, it is a window that really structures itself on an axis of high accountability. So if you picture like your math axes, you've got the Y going up and down, you got the X um, going across and, and, and it branches from accountability up and uh, support going uh, left to right. And I think it's a good place to sort of start. It is the cornerstone of restorative practices. It is like everything we talk about is being with people. When you are with someone, you hold them accountable at a high level, but you also support them. You're not just laying out the expectations and telling them, go for it. You got it on your own. You're also not saying, let me hold your hand through this whole thing, right? You're saying, here's the expectation. Here's what's expected of you in your work today. Here's what's expected of you in, at recess, what's expected of you at, on our field trip, whatever it is. How can I support you in getting there? Or how can we support each other in getting there? Right. So I, I always tell people to look there first and see where they default to. So I want to be in that with box all of the time, but it's hard, right? We go places for different reasons. We go places by design. I would go to my authoritarian to high expectation box when lunches were out of control in, in the school. I'd go in and I'd ream out a class or a grade level because they weren't doing what was expected. But I'd have to be really intentional about walking it back to the with. So start there. Really start to reflect on yourself and where you default to. My default is very permissive. I'm very high support. I know this probably doesn't surprise anybody who knows me who listens to this. I want to help people. I don't want them to feel like I'm betraying them, leaving them in a, in a lurch, leaving them to the, their own devices. So, so I default there, but it's important for me to recognize when I go there so that I can go back to that with and set high expectations for people. So definitely, definitely do that. One thing that I think is really beneficial as you start, I mentioned affective statements and affect is really just, you know, those, those emotions playing out like a biography. So what I, what I tell people to do is really teach your students affects, teach them emotions so that you can start to express those things to them and they can start to express them to one another. If you spend a lot of time up front on that emotional content and really help them to see what does excited mean, what does uh, upset mean, angry, frustrated, happy, joyful, whatever, then when you're giving them those affective statements and you're feeding them those things and telling them how you feel and why you feel that way, all at the same time remembering that we're not placing it on the student, we're placing it on the act. So when I, I feel so excited when work is being completed. 
And now you've hit five or six, seven different kids in the classroom that have done it and maybe three or four that haven't done it, right? But they know what that means. They know how to connect to that. So, so really digging into emotions and practicing um, some of those, those affective statements is, is another place to be. And, and you mentioned it before, Ken, really getting to know your students and understanding what makes them tick up front and making them part of decisions. Because the what makes them tick, what makes them fall off, what makes them upset, angry, frustrated, happy, all of those little affect triggers will help you to really build relationships with them. I know this upsets Johnny, I'm not gonna go there with Johnny. I know this makes Carrie happy, so I'm gonna really try and do this as often as I can with Carrie. And letting them know the things that make you happy, the things that make you frustrated, being intentional about those things. Um, and then I think lastly, you know, that real participatory decision-making that you already do around your classroom norms, expand that, expand that. Don't just leave it at your beginning of the year classroom norms, travel back there as often as you can. But when there's something new coming up, new content, new testing, like when you're giving your first test, have some participatory decision-making of what, about what that's going to look like. This is what it should look like, sound like, feel like, but let your students have some, some say in that. So then if the student isn't doing what's expected, look, we agreed to this as a class. This is what we agreed upon. You were part of that process. So what do you need in terms of support for me to reach my level of expectation, our level of expectation as a class? So don't just leave it at those really generic set of classroom rules that you create expand it to everything take the time to do that up front and and the success that you see will be so so much of tenfold. professional development really comes down to things that feel common sense to us and when we hear things that sound common sense to us we naturally downplay its effectiveness oh i already do that oh that's logical what about relationships that we hear are such a priority and and creating two weeks of two to three weeks of instructional time that's valuable all of those type things are really easy to dismiss as educators because we say we do it or we claim that yeah my kids priorities are feeling nurtured and cared for in class and, and I, I do agree with it. So I'm not, I'm not acting like I, I don't, but to me, when I hear what I'm, I'm hearing from you, Mike, and Ken, I've spent countless hours hearing what you did naturally for kids. And I'm like, yeah, I do that essentially. And I downplay this, the effectiveness of a conscientious purpose or Ken, what you like to say is that you are intentional with the relationships and the activities that you're doing. I, I'm just going to sit here and say, yeah, I'm intentional too. And say, uh, Mike doesn't really have that much more to offer. His kids are, might be a little bit more better behaved or, or they might, what is the selling point that you guys have felt like really led to a difference of it being just speak and taking these common sense features these relatable features and actually feeling like they make a huge difference or completely buying in. Do you want me to answer that? Or you want Ken to answer that? I'd like either both. Okay. Uh, I think, I think both of you have features. Like you can, you can go first, Mike. Okay. Yeah. 
right. Uh, you know, I, I think there's there's a few different ways to look at this, right? Like, you're you're totally right. We we are in the relationship business. At least, you know, I I've I have had teachers look me in the eye at trainings and say, no, I I got into this because I love teaching history or I love teaching math, right? I've had that said to me, and I, that's very fair. That's your passion. That's okay. I will tell you this, though. Not every student who comes into your classroom loves history, and not every student in your classroom loves math. And you might not be able to make them love history or math, but you can relate to them to a point where they want to come to your classroom and be part of what you're saying. You know, I went into a school my, my very first time as an assistant principal, and that school the year before I got there suspended over a hundred times, about 50 different kids. And my first year, we were right around that same number. And then we really got into and dug down into restorative practices. And when I left, we suspended 15 times, four, five, six, seven different kids. So, you know, the numbers don't lie when you're really intentional and you really devote yourself to relationships and really getting to know and dig into every single one of your students. And, and not, not just because we sit in a circle and we talk, but really dig in to the students. It's, it changes everything. You know, it changes everything. Kids want to show up. They want to be part of a community. They want to feel connected. They want to feel valued. And when, when we get, and, and adults do too, right? If adults don't feel connected and valued, then as an administrator, I'm failing. <laughs> I'm not doing my job. So I, for me, I, I just, I think, I don't think anybody is not trying to have relationships. I don't want to point that out as, as something that I believe, because I don't, I feel like everybody wants that. I think it's hard for some people to find the right ways to get in with students. So really intentionally asking questions and trying to understand what they come, where they come from, what they like to do, who they are under the surface level matters. And, and kids recognize that and they feel that and they want to connect then when we give the effort to that, when we put the effort out there. So it's interesting for me to reflect on that because I've been out of my fifth grade spot that I was in for a long time and now as an instructional coach and all of my, or a lot of my fifth graders are in high school where I spend 50% of my time as a secondary coach. And so I am frequently interacting with students that I hoped that I had meaningful relationships with and it's obvious and it's honestly tested it. For me, just the way they say hi to me, or they pretend not to know me in the hallway, or um, you know, when I when I talk to them, or when I'm in a classroom with them and I'm interacting with them, and so I've had I've had a lot of interactions with students that I taught anywhere from five to eight years ago, and it's reaffirming that the intentionality in those relationships truly does matter, and I. I think that the, the biggest piece of it is authenticity, authenticity in the way you, you interact with students. And what I love about exposing something like the restorative practices is it provides systems for teachers to utilize. And so if you are a teacher who you 
feel you try to establish relationships, but you're not sure if it's quite where you want it to be, or you struggle to create norms or create expectations in your classroom where you feel that the students buy in, then looking into some of the resources that Mike's going to share with us is probably a good path for you because it provides that that system to it. It's no different than if you're trying to integrate technology or you're trying to integrate small group instruction or you're trying to uh, do writing conferences better with students. You lean into these resources that have systemized it to make it easier for us to implement. And so when I interact with these students, it's it amazes me in, in some of the things that they say. And it's almost like I feel like they're giving back to what I gave them eight years ago. Like I feel like my interactions with my goal was that my their interactions with me made their day better, made their life better. Being in my classroom made their life better. They were happier. They were more joyful. They learned how to work hard, all of those different things. And it's almost like they're they're flipping it back to me. I just was talking to one of my students who's a senior. So he's graduating because we're recording this in April 30th. So he's graduating in a month. And all of the seniors go back to their elementary school and walk the hallways with their cap and gown. And he said to me, he's like, I'm probably not going to go because you're the only teacher that I would want to see. And I just, I see you here anyway. So you won't be there. Like just that little comment, it, 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 he meant nothing by it, but it like, it, it reaffirmed those efforts that I, I made with him eight years ago. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is it really does matter. And I think as teachers, we have to evaluate our strengths and our weaknesses because there's a lot that I think I did really well in the classroom and there's a lot that I did not. And I think it's important to look into resources and systems and avenues out there to strengthen the sides of your classroom that you need to strengthen. And if classroom management, classroom relationships, rapport, uh, dealing with discipline, both proactively and reactively are things that you think you can do a little bit better for your students than looking into a restorative practice classroom and the the systems they have in place, I think is something that would be extremely beneficial for teachers. I mean, just from the the validation side, obviously, I think we all would want, Ken, what you have the experience of having. And those little things that you're hearing is the fuel. And Mike, I know that you've been heaped praise by kids being excited. Going back from your second grade, I know you went to your high school graduation, even though that wasn't the school you were working at at that time. I guess where, uh, Mike, you might be able to best uh, answer this. And, and I'll also share that like I've had opportunities to go to the high school and middle school and feel like I got it right with certain groups and maybe I could have made adjustments a little bit way, uh, differently with other groups. And, and that, as we have talked about, may be system-based, it might be structure-based, it might just be group-based. Um, Mike, are you familiar with TPAC? No. Okay. So TPAC is for instructional technology. It's the idea of recognizing educational pedagogy or pedagogy of, of human beings. The idea of what you need to teach instructionally based off standards and the integration of technology. And the sweet spot is really utilizing just enough technology and the knowledge of pedagogy to deliver instruction in a really meaningful, deep way. And so there are ways that you could go 
more tech heavy with good pedagogy, there are ways that you could go good pedagogy with good teaching and leave out technology. And that's totally fine. But that sweet spot is the middle. The thing that I often struggle with, considering that example of going back to high school and having kids run up to me and then some avoid me, which again, they're teenagers and almost adults. So that's another factor to that is that sweet spot of all the things we balance as teachers. We balance so much that I could put a tremendous emphasis into relationships at the sacrifice of instruction. I could put a tremendous amount of uh, focus on instruction and not wasting an instructional moment with the loss of relationships and not really having it be as successful as we want. Is there a way to kind of, or maybe within restorative classroom or in general, to kind of guide to that sweet spot of saying, oh, I feel like I'm doing enough culture development. And maybe that's an outrageous thing to say, but if I'm in the seventh week of school, and I'm not teaching instruction yet, I think we would all agree that there's something wrong, right? But what is that guidance to say, I'm putting enough emphasis on my classroom culture, I'm putting enough emphasis on classroom expectations, I'm being intentional and, and feeling intentional in all these different aspects that I get that melting pot of exactly that right balance, again, recognizing there's no marker to say I got it right at that moment and groups will change, days will change, the weather will change. What is that kind of marker to say, oh, I put a little bit too much of this in, I need to back off. How are you gauging that? I, I think, I think, you know, you said it best, teachers, teachers know, like teachers know when, what, what feels right. Are you, are, you know, you, if you're walking into your classroom every day and kids are on their phones and, and not really listening, has it, has it become too neglectful? Has it become too permissive? Do you have to revisit expectations? Um, do you feel like you're not connected to your kids, but your content's really getting through, or at least they're, they're complying to it, right? They, they come in, they sit down, they get a pencil, but they don't really have a conversation with you. They're just listening. Then do you have to reflect on, am I doing enough of the, of the relationship building or, you know, are they just being compliant? I think you get a feel for how your kids respond based on what you did up front. You know, if you put in that effort up front to really build that relationship and be intentional and be authentic and, um, and do that up front that I want you to know me because I'm going to be standing in front of you, working with you, facilitating conversations around this content area that you may love or you may not love, but I want you to love coming here every day. So let's make that happen together. And the second it feels like you're getting away from one of those two things being in balance, then going back to that discipline window that I talked about and reflecting on what is it? Because so often we want to say, well, the kids, the kids, the kids. But are we looking internally and saying, well, what am I like? What am I missing? What am I missing, missing that's making kids respond to me that way? So I, I think it's just really understanding your own balance, Matt, and, and, and looking at your classroom in balance, getting a really good picture of what it looks like in balance. So when it falls out of balance, understanding that you have to get, you have to get it back together again. And what does that mean? Does it mean more accountability? Does it mean more support? 
And how do I get there? How do I walk back to with? So as we wind down this conversation, Mike, what are, let's say, top three or four resources that our listeners who are interested in this or they've heard of it and now this is kind of the spark for them to to look into it more, what's the the best place for them to go? And are there a couple specific articles or strategies or or graphics on there to kind of help them conceptualize this a little bit more and take it one step further? All right. Yeah, so a bunch of resources. I'm actually going to really shamelessly plug the IARP right now. So uh, the IARP is the International Institute for Restorative Practices. It's a graduate school. Uh, It's where I work, and I am currently taking classes, actually, toward my graduate certificate. So uh, that's that's a first uh, resource that you can certainly look into is the graduate program. Um, you can do a graduate cert like I am. You can do a full program and get your master's. You can get a master's with a thesis. There's a whole bunch of options uh, for, for individuals to go. Some of my colleagues have gone through the whole master's program, uh, had, have, have had great success, have really enjoyed their time with them. So uh, that'd be the first place I tell you to go to, IRP.edu. Uh, graduate education is the second tab uh, on the page. But if you're just looking for more information about restorative practices, there's a whole section that you can go into. There's a paper series, Restorative Works Magazine. We just started a podcast. It's like three episodes in, and it is tremendous. Uh, There's a section, just Restorative Practices Explained, that has those graphics, that has stories about schools who have implemented, teachers who have implemented. There's a whole resource section for schools K-12. Um, that you can dig into and really get yourself uh, more embedded in the work and, and understanding more about it. And then I would definitely consider a professional development. You know, it doesn't have to be a school-wide, district-wide project. Sure, we have whole school change. You can certainly look into that uh, from a district perspective. But we have professional developments that we do online, public trainings that you can come to. They're two-day events. We have them in person as well, but right now the easiest ones to get to are online because we run so many of them. Uh, there are two days. They go from about 1230 to five and they're basically a hybrid model. So you do a little bit of the work offline, flip classroom, and uh, then you do uh, a lot of the work with from people all across the country. My last online training had people from Pennsylvania all the way out to California and I had one from Alaska. So, you know, there are people from all over the country on these trainings and really get you into the weeds of what we talked about here tonight. And some people have taken that training and gone on to become trainers themselves. And they've gone on to um, take take grad classes and, and go as far as getting their master's from IRP. So go to IRP.edu, explore the website. Uh, you know, you can find my information on there. When you go to contact us, uh, you can find all the instructors, but I'm right at the top. It's the benefit of having a last name that begins with A. So you can certainly find my info and reach out to me and, and I'm happy to answer any questions or work with you however, um, however you see fit and however you see benefiting you and your classroom. Excellent. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Mike. I think this is uh, something, again, that I, I think is a good thing for teachers to look into during these these summer months and use it in multiple frames. You're, you want to dive all the way in, like you said, with the graduate courses, or you just feel like 
you're doing a good job with relationships, but you need a little bit more of a system or you want a tool to, like you said, evaluate when behaviors are, are trending towards the negative side, something to evaluate yourself on and reflect yourself on, on how you're approaching that and, and benefiting students. So I think this is a, a great place to start for, for our listeners, whether they're teachers or building leaders as well. So Mike, thanks again for joining us back on the show. And Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? As we power down this episode, best buddy, Mike, you left us feeling powered up. We appreciate your time and, uh, and, and taking the opportunity to, to take this past the common sense. Because I think that's what we all, when looking at an open mind, uh, we'll see a lot of value in this episode. So all that being said, we look forward to the next conversation. Um, and Mike, maybe we'll have you on in the future for some other, some other reasons. Hopefully. Yeah, we we'll love that, guys. Thanks for having me on. Until then, until then uh, we will talk to everyone next week. Stay well, and we'll talk to you then. Absolutely. Mike, I'll, t- I'll text you tomorrow. Too. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> uh. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators. We're making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.